Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the... Bam! <clears throat> I'm still fired up about this. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we um we we talked about the Jeffrey Epstein case. Recently, yes, um, but a couple of weeks ago, th- there, there in, have been some developments. One, one development, there was in a development particular. that has some some weedsy weedsy angles. So he he committed suicide, allegedly, uh, over <laughs> over the weekend. I believe the preferred terminology is died by suicide. Died by suicide. Yes, allegedly. One of the things about this case that's been driving me insane, and I think that that's just the nature of how humans work, is that like. There's been obviously a lot of conspiracy theorizing, and I think Dara, you made the point on Twitter that if you were like at all a journalist, and you're just as um, I believe Hayes Brown at BuzzFeed put it, uh, putting your drafts out on the internet. There was so much, and, and I mean, it was fairly explicit, right? Like it wasn't just the people who should know better speculating; it was the people who definitely did know better saying, on behalf of the rational people, we're taking the day off. Y'all can yeah. go wild, which is like a bad idea. And I think that we can't have the conversation about like what actually happened and what we know and what we don't know without having the meta conversation of, yes, we're in a place where, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, you know, the whole Jeffrey Epstein saga feels designed to make Pizzagate seem rational. Right. And it's to like a justify order so many episode. things yeah. that people believe about like, you know, all the strings being connected, et cetera. But It just seems like people have kind of let their imaginations run further than their sense of responsibility to each other. So, Especially because in most cases, in general, you know, there's that saying that, like, when you hear hoofbeats, it's horses, probably not zebras. And in this case, it's probably not brutal Clinton-Trump-related murder squads. It's probably that the place where Jeffrey Epstein was held, which was described by others as being like worse conditions than Guantanamo Bay and a place where, as we'll get into with the actual weedsy part of portion of this conversation, there were a lot of issues at the particular holding facility where he was, as there are at virtually every federal prison in America, because prison guards are underpaid and overworked, and prisons in general receive 
far too little funding to do things like prevent uh, suicide within prisons. Right. I sort of disagree with this take. I think that, look, public officials have certain responsibilities, right, to the public and to do their jobs. And, like, journalists also have responsibilities. And, like, I am not going to sit here and spin some thing here because there's, like, so many dots that, like, if you connect them all, you come up with something ridiculous. And there's no way to choose which path, like, makes some kind of sense and which does not. But from the moment that these charges were unveiled against Epstein, Attorney General Barr And U.S. Attorney Berman and President Trump and other people in positions of responsibility in the federal government have not been acknowledging that, like, there is something fishy about this situation and that people would like to know what the heck is happening, that even the sort of post-death, like, let's let's bring it back together statement from the U.S. Attorney's Office was about how, like— Justice will be done for his victims. I guess we'll continue. And of course, I don't want to say like the victims aren't the issue because of course the victims are an important issue here. But like what people would like to know, right, as we said in the episode before, is like why did Jeffrey Epstein get this incredible sweetheart deal under terms that were very, very, very unusual, featuring immunization of unnamed co-conspirators for no really clear reason? And given that On the innocent explanation, this just had something to do with him being a really rich guy who had a lot of high-powered lawyers. How is it that we still have no idea how he got to be so rich, right? right? And then, like, again, sure, incompetence rather than conspiracy. Like, yes, 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 yes. But, like, knowing that there were so many unanswered questions over this and knowing that bad things happen a lot in prisons, why didn't they— do anything, right? right? And so to you, if, if you want to come out here and say, right, like, like I, I would love to hear the attorney general say, like, I would like everybody to calm down with the conspiracy theories. <laughs> but to that end, I am going to acknowledge, like, A, some substantial systemic flaws in the system, and B, it's some, like, very specific fuck-ups to, like, not treat this more seriously, and C, that, like, The Secretary of Labor didn't just, like, vanish in a poof of smoke the other day, but, like, he he went down under fire of a major political scandal. And, like, there is so much, like, hubbub in the Trump era that, like, we, like, move on and on and on and on from these things. But it is, I think, constructive for people with platforms to be— pressing on this. And, like, I I get the imperative of, like, full-time criminal justice people, you know, criminal defense lawyers, you know, human rights people, reformers, to be like, guys, 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 like, you have to understand the criminal justice system. But, like, there is a real specificity to this set of situations that, that is, like, quite different from an ordinary criminal case. And it is not being treated by people in power as if there's anything unusual about this when there very clearly is. And like they owe us an explanation of what's going on. So I think that there are three threads here, two of which are like questions about uh, like jail conditions and one of which is a purely meta journalistic discussion. And like the first two is like, you know, were the circumstances under which Jeffrey Epstein was 
being kept prior to his death, like, unusual in a way that should raise eyebrows? And the answer to that is pretty clearly no, as far as we can tell. Like, outrageous, perhaps, unusual, no. The second strand is, why weren't there particularly strong protections in place? Which I think is the question you're asking, Matt, right? right? Like, given the circumstances of this case, like, you can stipulate that the American jail system does not keep, does not, like, treat people with enough respect or dignity to guarantee human life. But why weren't extra precautions made given the, you know, given that this was high profile, given previous attempts, et cetera? Um, that's an interesting question, but A, you should make sure, we should make sure to note that as far as the actual criminal charges that were being filed were concerned, he was the only defendant. And so treating him as a witness would be a matter of like, a potential future witness in other cases. It wasn't like that does raise questions about who gets to decide in the criminal justice system which people being held in jails get extra protections. And then the third is just like something that I think is an underrated distinction even among journalists that I've started thinking about a great deal is the difference between things that are logically plausible that like I can make an argument for why it could be the case and things that I actually have empirical evidence that it might be the case. And like you can't necessarily look at an assertion that someone is making and tell at a glance whether they're saying I have reason to believe that this is the case or I have reasoned my way to believing that this is the case. And people take cues from journalists and as often assume a, a certain amount of internal of interior knowledge and right. like because of that I think there is a particularly strong argument against just kind of reasoning your way to particular things when we're all operating in an information vacuum, because that's the kind of thing that people kind of take and run with and can then react to any clawing back of positions and saying, well, we don't know for sure. Subsequent evidence has changed my mind, yada, 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 and say, oh, you're just afraid of the truth. Like you you knew it initially, and now you're just trying to cover your or someone else's right. butt. I think something, though, that is really complex about this case is that it is both a very specific instance. Like, there are, thank God, not very many Jeffreys Epstein, as far as we know. Oh, my gosh. Um, but that just seems like tempting some yeah, kind of. I, I don't. Uh, uh. And so there are a lot of conditions that are very specific to who he was. You know, the spe you know, the specificity of him somehow going from no college degree to teaching at fancy school to Bear Stearns to making lots of money for in ways that no one seems to be able to explain. And now that there's being more examination of and then his relationship with the Victoria's Secret founder, who now is like, oh, he stole tons of money about it. But I just never said anything about it for reasons. But I do think for a lot of people. And I think that this it's one of those moments where um, the there's a writer at Mother Jones who came up with this term called nut picking, which is basically where you take like the worst example of whatever your political opposition is and are like, that is with a face of the whatever. And I think for a lot of people, they look at Jeffrey Epstein and are like, that is the face of the plutocratic rich in this country, Yeah, which is one of those things where you're kind of like, that's probably not true. But also, it feels kind of true. And I think that, that that's something where um, you know, a lot of the basic questions that we're asking are questions that you could actually ask about 
a lot of people in this country who were in the same circles as Jeffrey Epstein. For example, you know, I think um, I'm reminded of the terrific piece that now has become a book um, in The Cut about Anna Delvey, the uh, fake heiress who stole a ton of money from people. And one of the quotes from that was that there was a moment in which she, uh, someone, like some other rich person let her borrow um, like a significant sum of money. And she was always like, oh, you know, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. And they were like, well, you know, I just kind of thought that maybe she forgot how much money she had or, you know, she'd figure it out in some way. And it's I think it's moments like these in which, you're, you know, like where people are wealthy, but there's no explanation for it, where people are socialites, a term that I I still do not know what that means or how one becomes a socialite. But just I think the thing with the Epstein case is that we it both is a very specific example, but I think for a lot of people, it's like, this is what the wealthy that I don't understand experience, this is what they're like. And there's a part of me that's like, that's probably not true, but then also kind of, it seems kind of true-ish. Yeah, I mean, this is also where, to the extent that, like, that then leads itself to, well, there are a lot of people who benefit from Epstein being dead and unable to defend himself. Like, it's kind of important to note that, Yes, on the one hand, this particular criminal charge that is filed is now moot because he's not officially like stood trial for it yet. On the other hand, he now no longer has standing to challenge the inclusion of evidence. No, so, that, like, that's, so a, that's a is, really important part of this. So it is kind of important to note that even though it's currently entirely on the FBI as to whether or like other, you know, law enforcement agencies as to how far they want to go with this investigation, whether they want to file new sets of charges against other co-conspirators who are alive, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is a relevant respect in which it is not, in fact, convenient sure. for Epstein's purported, er, you know, potential co-conspirators to have him now dead in a jail cell because it means that there is a way in which some evidence might not have been brought into, might not have been admitted in, in potential future trials that now it's just going to be there. We actually saw a media version of this with a New York Times reporter who who basically, like, published a draft um, recently saying, oh, well, this wasn't at the time an off-the-record conversation, but now that Jeffrey Epstein is dead, I consider that prohibition to have lapsed, which is an interesting side question of journalistic ethics, but also does indicate a certain amount of, well, I know that I'm not, that like the person who would have standing to challenge me on this is now dead, and so truth is the more important input. But but here's, here's, here's what I'm saying, though, right? There is, separate from any theories one might have about Jeffrey Epstein's death, right? There is a clear, like, I don't think it is a conspiracy theory at all to suggest that something happened relating to Jeffrey Epstein's uh, wealth and power that led to him getting a very, very kind treatment in the criminal justice system 10 years ago. And also that it is unusual for a person to have amassed that much wealth in a way that even in retrospect, nobody seems to understand, right? That like, that is the like conspiracy that to me is of interest here, right? Right. And it doesn't need to be a conspiracy, right? The, the, the I think, official non-conspiratorial account is he was very, very rich. And, and because his attorneys he, were mean. Like, and because he, he was so attorneys. rich, he had such good attorneys. And the way the criminal justice system works is we just roll over for rich people who have a lot of fancy lawyers. But wh- whatever the explanation is, like, th- that to me is a question that, like, urgently needs 
answering, not just for the sake of Epstein's particular victims, but for how it can inform our thinking going forward about a lot of criminal justice type issues. Now, the circumstances of his death may or may not have anything to do with the circumstances of his earlier um, sort of sort of lax treatment, but it would be good to hear from someone in charge that they see that there is an issue here right. and that they are working on Right. That that the death is not either like part of some cover up or a convenient excuse. Right. Because, you know, there are a million degrees of like action and inaction in a complicated type situation. Right. Like I think we can all take it for granted that if somebody found like a Chinese spy at the highest levels of the government, they wouldn't like put him into the regular federal lockup, uh, leave him around there. He hangs himself with a sheet and then everybody comes up the next day and is like, (laughs) well, a lot of (laughs) fucked up shit happens in prison, right? Like that would be like a a four alarm fire. And and you wouldn't be like, you would ask the question, like, why did they let that happen, right? Now, this is not that, right? Like the Epstein case is very interesting, but it's not a top level national security case. But There's something about, like, the seriousness with which, like, the journalistic community has been taking this to be, like, a really big deal story, right? Right. There's, like, Pulitzer Prize investigations. There's reporting teams from multiple publications. They're, like, trying to get to the bottom of this. And the behavior of the Bureau of Prisons suggests that they saw it differently, Mm -hmm. right? That this, to them, was, like, not a big deal. And you're going to kind of toss them in there with everybody else. They'll be sort of mistreated in some routine way. And and I think that's like deserves some explanation. And I also think on the baseline facts about a, a lot of people, you know, sort of embarrass themselves over the weekend by getting like saying things that are like totally not true about, you know, the ease with which people can end up uh, killing themselves in, in prisons. Right. But we learned a lot. You know, as a society from that, like, like prison suicide Twitter, like really mobilized and and brought a lot of information to bear in a way that I thought was, I don't know, like productive and useful. Yeah, I actually I, I'm thinking we should probably take a break and then we should probably jam some fo- facts into people's heads for people who and uh, jail suicide Twitter, to be clear, yes. uh, because this is, in fact, a relevant factor. But but yeah, let's let's talk through what we actually do know about uh, suicides and confinement. Yes. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. 
You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so the canonical text here and something we're going to put in show, in show notes is an investigation by the Huffington Post, uh, their investigative Highline project, uh, in the year after Sandra Bland's death in a Texas jail shortly after having been arrested. And very for, briefly, Dara, yeah, yeah, yeah. can you very briefly explain for our audience who might not get this difference, what is the difference between jail and right. prison? Right. So prison is what you're put into after you are sentenced, specifically for sentences longer than a year. Jail is both where you're kept if your sentence is shorter than that and where you're held before your trial if you're not if you can't afford the bail that's set for you or if bail isn't set for yeah. you. And so it ends up being a kind of a lot of people end up rotating in and out pretty frequently because they'll be arrested, they'll post bail, they'll get out, they'll be arrested again, often on low-level offenses. It's a place where you don't necessarily expect to be taken. And so there's kind of the population there is mixed and there isn't always the level of scrutiny on jails that there is on prisons. So this team kind of did a bunch of compiling of death in jails records and, you know, found several, like, something on the order of 800 deaths in American jails in the year, you know, mid-2015 to, to mid-2016, uh, a third of which were suicides, which is much higher than suicide in terms of, like, causes of death right. among most people, uh, you know, among among the general population. And some of the patterns that they found do actually track with the Epstein case pretty closely, even though most of the people in jail do not look anything at all like Jeffrey Epstein. They did find that risk of suicide was higher for people who were accused of violent crimes or sex offenses, uh, possibly because they were worried about serving long sentences or being targeted while in jail. Uh, They found that risk of suicide was often very high within the first few days of confinement, which was what appeared to have been a suicide attempt on Jeffrey Epstein's part shortly after he got booked into jail last month, which has raised its own kind of questions about, like, why he wasn't on extra suicide watch. The answer to that is that it only lasts, like, several days after the first suicide attempt um, that you are automatically on suicide watch, you know, because of that. And that, like, it often doesn't that there's something about the process of being put into jail, of being stripped down, uh, you know, being dehumanized that can really trigger something in people, even people who haven't necessarily demonstrated suicidal ideation in the past. And so it doesn't seem that weird that someone who is in the abstract accused of a sex offense, who had had a suicide attempt shortly after being put into jail, and who was, you know, as we said before the break, like for the first time in his life, really looking at being treated like everybody else, right? In this like same facility where people accused of all kinds of offenses Mm -hmm. were being held, that that might be the kind of 
shocking experience that might lead someone to kill themselves. But at the same time, like, this gets to the kind of second thread of what I was talking about earlier. Like, why, given that Jeffrey Epstein wasn't, in fact, just anybody, that he was Jeffrey Epstein, the kind of second level of questions of why weren't there extra precautions being taken? Well, no, so, I mean, you you read the Huffington Post investigation, right? And it it comes through loud and clear that, like, the the reason this is so common is that the jail system, the criminal justice system writ large, you know, like doesn't see protecting people as a high priority, right? I mean, from the standpoint of the bureaucracy's imperatives, uh, this is like a problem solved. You know what I mean? Like, Like they are not strongly incentivized to protect people from self-harm under those circumstances. Yeah, this is a pretty commonly held misconception that the criminal justice system has about itself, that its job is to prevent crime. It's not really. Its job is to, like, confine people so that any crime that happens is visited only among people who are themselves confined. Well, and so, you know, and so so you get it, right? I mean, you, you see a very clear picture of, like, why the system can operate this way, but it seems like... Like, given that exact logic that, like, there should be some fairly well understood zones of exception, right, which is that most of the time the inmate is, like, the um, object of the system's wrath, but sometimes you are trying to use the inmate to further investigations and things like that. And in those cases, you know, you you would think not, right? And there's a, you know, famous, uh, you know, for normal people who don't know anything except movies, right? Uh, in, in Godfather 2, uh, when there's an important, you know, mafia witness in lockup, <laughs> right? But the specific modality of silencing him is to have an attorney come and suggest that were he to kill himself, his family would be taken care of, right? right? right. And like a smart investigative system is going to try to stop that from from happening. Right. And that is what I have just not been, I mean, not just in the specific facts of the Epstein case, but actually in the broader commentary on this question, I haven't seen as much clarity from people who've really looked at it is, is the system effective at protecting people who it does want to protect, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a question of indifference, of just not caring about the majority of the people who are there. And then there's a question of competence, right? It's like, when they want to mobilize and make sure somebody gets it through, like, are they good at that or are they just, you know, like, really not? Like, some agencies just can't do things that don't have the institutional culture. And it's really clear that in the, the prison system in particular, federal prisons, uh, as a result of sort of 10 years of austerity budgeting, have now become, like, incredibly understaffed, which is something that there's been a lot of uh, pretty good reporting on, you know, which does raise questions about whether they even can, you know, control certain things when they want to. Right. I mean, I think that the, sh- the short answer to that is that in general, the uh, easiest response to any threat of interpersonal violence is uh, the shoe or right. solitary confinement, which like is good at preventing interpersonal violence at very, very high cost to like individual mental health and arguably dignity. Um, But I do kind of want to, and I I alluded to this earlier, but I want to turn this back on you a little bit, Matt, because I think that this is where it's useful to start disaggregating the system into various players, because there is a difference just in terms of who is making the ask between like an attorney saying, look, this is a witness in an upcoming criminal trial. It's very important that we keep this person in protective custody. And 
somebody from, I guess, the FBI saying, look, we're not done with this Epstein investigation yet. We're very aware that possible future defendants have a strong interest in doing some harm to his person. Can you please, as a corrections you know, like as the Bureau of Prisons take charge of this particular case. Like, I don't know. I neither know what the relationships between those particular offices are. And I assume it's really a like individual level variation, nor do I have a strong in- inclination on what I think the relationship should be. But I think it really it I can see it going down a problematic path very quickly if we're allowing like random law enforcement agents who are engaging in ongoing investigations to say this person is important to my particular case and right. therefore should be kept I safe. I just I just want to see the classic, you know, finger pointing, public airing of grievances. Like I yeah. I, I I'm not saying that the conspiracy theories are true. No, no, but no, no. I'm you, little, you like, want you want some oversight hearings where the head of the Bureau of Prisons has to explain ex- ex- exactly who he's going to throw under the bus. I am kind of I, I'm the acting head of the Bureau of Prisons, yes, to be clear. I, I, I'm just a little anti-anti-conspiracy theory. Here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I I want the relevant officials to be dragged before Congress to explain themselves. I am totally happy to believe that there is a not exactly innocent but just like one of those things you know like bureaucracies doing their thing right. no this is exactly a kind of outrage that ought to lead to broader systemic right, change but, but, but i want to hear it that i feel like some people i i agree with you dara that like some people on blue check twitter were were wielding their power irresponsibly but i think that some people on like I have read the literature on conspiracy theories, Twitter. <laughs> hey, we're doing whoa. too much. No, we're whoa. doing too much to like preemptively shut down. At me next time. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. I, I feel like I know who might have stopped tweeting and it's not you. So but it's Brendan Nyhan. Thank you. Um, that, that I think that you know that like there there is a there is an order to it, right? And it's like it's good that they did the Warren Commission report. Right. Right. Like, yes, yes. I agree. Ask it's the not... questions, do the legwork. But and, yeah. And to have just said, like, when Kennedy was shot and then Oswald, while in custody, was shot by a possibly mobbed up uh, Las Vegas yeah. uh, gangster, uh, Dallas, if everybody's response to that had just been like, shut up, conspiracy theorists, obviously it's just a set of random coincidences, that would have been really unsatisfying. But the, it was important to do the investigation. But the issue is that the investigation didn't really work. Because right. the thing about conspiracy theories is that they are not based around, like, fact-finding. They are based around an article of fact that you backfill from there. I, I I agree. I agree. But, I mean, again, this is to say the archetype of the JFK assassination conspiracy theorist, though, is that, yes, there is this large group of people, the quote-unquote conspiracy theorists, who are never satisfied by the evidence. But, if again, if the response the day after Oswald's murder— had just been to say, well, look, we know you're never going <laughs> to shut up the conspiracy theorists, so there's no point in looking into this. Like, that would be crazy. There's, like, a relevant margin of people who look at weird situations involving prominent crimes and important people and are like, wow, I, re- I would like to know what happened there. And, like, I would like to know what happened. There's something to me, though, in which you get the sense, and I, this is just a general truism, most people will not have any contact with the criminal justice system outside of, like, you— Most per- white people. Most white people. 
And I think that that's where, that's where we should put this. And not even in terms of, like, you yourself being accused of a crime, but needing to, do like, appear as a witness or showing up in some sort of court proceeding. So I think for a lot of people, like, for instance, a lot of times if you are accused of a crime and sent to jail, you probably won't go to trial. Because at some point, your attorney, who's very, very, very tired because they're a public defender and an American hero, will be like, we do not have the time or space to get to this to go to trial. So you're going to take a plea deal, even if you keep saying, I didn't do the thing, because the effort to put behind, to prove that you didn't do the thing is too much because I don't have the time because I have 300 cases right now. And And if I fight your case, those other 299 get a lot harder for me. Right, exactly. And so I think that there's something to this where when your understanding of how this works is basically like the end of Goodfellas, where Henry Hill points at Jimmy and it was like, yeah, that's the guy. I did this. Now I have to go into witness protection and I can't get decent spaghetti anymore. That's not what this generally looks like. And so I think that this is a moment in which you, I mean, I think it's like when people were absolutely shocked that, um, you know, like uh, former USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser got away with abusing young women for decades. And then, you, you know, when an FBI agent was essentially bribed by a by the president of USA Gymnastics by being like, I can get you a job in the USOC. And the FBI agent was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. I am not saying that we, sh- we don't need to find out what happened with Epstein, but I also think that there is an idea of the criminal justice system that is very separated from what the criminal justice system in this country is for the vast majority of people. I do think the fact that Jeffrey Epstein being a name now known across the country Uh, And perhaps around the world, because Daily Mail has been all over this, as you might imagine, you know, and the fact that they were one that Epstein's attorneys, according to The Wall Street Journal, were like, he doesn't need to be on suicide watch anymore. And the the Bureau of Prisons was like, oh, okay, sounds good to us. And that like there there wasn't more examination here. But to me, I'm just like, ah, so the criminal justice system, criminal justice system again. Right. I kind of want to like provide some discussion questions here because I think that because this has been a learning opportunity for, you know, some people who like weren't thinking about jail suicides as one of the preeminent problems facing American life, like the reason that it has gotten to this point is that a lot of Americans have made the assessment that criminal confinement writ large, A, is like some kind of punishment for wrongdoing, which in the case of jails is just not how it works. But B, that like it's a space where it doesn't particularly matter what happens because the point is that they're separated from the general population. And like I think there really should be a conversation about what level of safety and dignity do we think as a society is just a basic human guarantee that no matter what you're accused of, no matter what your explicit criminal sentence is, whatever, like that you should have access to? And what do we think are some ways in which it is fair to compromise protections because someone who is in the criminal justice system has forfeited certain basic, you know, you know, like assumptions of society? That is a conversation that like, if we don't have it explicitly, leads to going to the lowest common baseline. Right. Um, and then I think the other kind of the, the discussion going back to what, you know, you guys were talking about about the Warren Commission is like, yeah, there is a compelling argument for you at least, you know, do the legwork and kind of prevent the middle from being tempted by the conspiracists by demonstrating to the middle that like there isn't anything there. 
This also does, however, remind me of the conversation around racism and like, are you, is just calling someone a racist and attempting to like shun that view from polite society something that just causes it to fester underground or is it something that successfully shames people out of communicating that worldview? Like, there is a much more complicated conversation about like the best way to trans to prevent the transmission of noxious ideas. Uh, the good news, as far as I personally am concerned, is that not all of that weight falls on us as journalists. Right. That like we have the benefit of having a professional license to to state inconvenient truths, even if stating those truths might lead to adverse consequences for people down the road. Like it's just that's that's what's in the job description. But, I, but, but I think especially here, right, because the um, sophisticated non-conspiracy theorist explanation is that what is actually happening here is like routine, systematic human rights abuses. I think that that like further strengthens the case for not preemptively shaming oh, yeah. the conspiracy theorists. You know what I mean? That like in a weird way, and I, and I understand how people's like egos work on this, but it was odd to me to see sort of criminal justice reformers yelling at Epstein conspiracy theory right. tourists on Sunday when a good like an outcome that would be beneficial to the cause of criminal justice reform would be to have Bill Barr yell at the conspiracy theorists. No, 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 you guys don't understand. Actually, our prison system, our jail system is like a nightmare of routine cruelty. <laughs> right. right. No, but you, no, you yeah. know what I mean? That, that like, again, and, and I get it because it's people who have the knowledge right. don't like to see people who don't have the knowledge uh, saying things that are ignorant and wrong. But it, the Secret Service changed how they guard the president after right. JFK was, you know what I mean? It's like you have to do the thing. I right. think. And and a lot of people, there's a ton of impatience in the social media world yeah. and disintermediation of various things, right? When like a good way to do this would be for those experts to like be there as witnesses on the panel and being like, you know what? Attorney General Barr is correct. Like this is the kind of routine slipshod yeah. stuff that happens under his watch. And everyone's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, you know, but it's it's like it's 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 important to do this stuff, especially because in some ways I feel like the political system has lost the capacity uh to do anything that isn't like a strict partisan food right. fight. But like this is, you know, everything that happens has a partisan element to yes. it. But I think a lot of people of both parties are like, feel like this situation's fucked up. Like everybody in this podcast studio agrees that the answer is like, ask hard questions, ask them all the time, like of everybody. Yeah. But it's like, but, it's, but it's like, yes. you know, like, like they should do something stagey and dramatic. And I think well, something good. I mean, it's both like we could get some facts about this case, but like we could also get a template for actually taking on some of these systematic issues because it puts in a different light to people who would otherwise be pretty indifferent. Right. To say that, like, you know, it turns out that like there are serious problems with having like very poorly managed uh, prisons. And, and I'm sure there's like bigger issues, yes. right, that, that can all go through this. As I, of the taping of this podcast, the latest reports on the Hill are that Congress is, like, really kind of scrambling to do something before the conspiracy theories totally take yeah. over, which would be exactly the right resolution to this, yeah. in my particular opinion. And, and and when it happens, we can take credit for it and say it's because they listened to the weeds. Exactly. And also, the FBI has uh, made a visit to the island Jeffrey Epstein previously owned um, as witnessed by a tour group manager 
who was just boating around the area. And I was like, there are a lot of people with FBI written on the back of their shirts. But I'd also like to note that, you know, one of the things I think, you know, I made kind of the point about not picking, but I do think like there is something that New York Times story that Dara referenced in which Epstein talks about how like, you know, the criminalization of my enjoyment of teenage girls is wrong and it used to be very common and it's it was funny because rereading that i'm like oh i've heard this so many times from so many different people so i do think that the epstein case is singular but it also should be a time at which we we start challenging a lot of existing norms and those norms go back to who epstein was at the very root as well as his treatment or lack of treatment in prison or not prison jail Sorry. Take a break. Do a white paper. Mm-hmm. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we have today The Urban Crime and Heat Gradient in High and Low Poverty Areas by Killian Howman and, and Matthew Kahn. Um, so th- this is looking at the question. They, they have very sort of spatially detailed data from the city of Los Angeles showing uh, temperatures at very specific times. And they show that crime increases uh, quite a lot on the hottest days in L.A., that when it's over 85 degrees, overall crime goes up by 2.2 percent, but that's driven by a 5.7 percent increase in violent crime. uh, And it's concentrated specifically in the lower income, uh, higher crime neighborhoods of Los Angeles overall. Um, you know, so as they say, I mean, th- this has implications, obviously, for climate change. Uh, there are going to be hotter days um, and apparently more crime as a result for that. Uh, also, some some views into how things sort of work uh, out there. They show that the, the LAPD seems to um, do less on hotter days. They're just like, arresting fewer people. There's fewer patrols. Uh, the suggestion is uh, it's, it's not as nice uh, to be sort of out and about doing things. And everyone sort of slowly slows down their their pace of activities. And they show that, you know, when, when you sort of disaggregate the, the violent crime, that it, there is not an increase in um, sort of domestic violence type violent offenses, which they are suggesting are probably less responsive to police patrolling type activity. Um, So there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things. I mean, the other thing that they find is that, like, neighborhoods with older housing stock Mm -hmm. in particular have are particularly susceptible to this, especially in cases of domestic violence where you can imagine things spatially taking place inside the home. So, yeah, it's they're doing a lot of work with this in the context of climate change Mm -hmm. and responses to climate change and resilience. Um, But I think it's also fascinating because, you know, there's kind of a folk understanding for any of us who have ever lived in a neighborhood with like higher elevated crime rates, like you know, at, at the beginning of the summer, when it looked like it was going to be a very hot summer, there, I like, we had a lot of conversations in my household about, like, this is not going to get, not going to be very good. There's definitely going to be more right. 
reason for us to be worried about like where we're going outside at night. There's going we we can't assume more police cars and areas yeah. blocked off and that and kind of thing. Think- and it's good to have like actual support for this being the case, not just in a general sense, but in a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. Right. And you know, I remember um we talked previously about our own experiences of the Cincinnati riots in 2001. And one of those was that it was April, but I, I remember it being extremely hot that week unusually hot for April in Cincinnati. And so it's interesting to see this data, but it's also interesting to see how it is impacted by law enforcement just not doing things and just like how that relationship shows up and how I I would be curious to see kind of what what the responses from law enforcement would be as to, you know, because I think, I mean, obviously, if you're law enforcement, you cannot arrest everyone all the time. And you shouldn't because that would be extremely bad. But the, it's it's interesting how that plays into how, you know, I know that when, uh, you know, I live in the great DC neighborhood of Shaw and I routinely see cop cars where there's just a police officer just sitting there being, you know, hanging out and being observant. But and I've noticed that when the weather gets warmer, I see fewer of those cop cars. But again, this is me noticing. That is the most anic data of anic data. So I'd be curious to see how that's borne out um, from the side of law enforcement. Wait, I mean, there was one of their suggestions there was that you might want to sort of, you know, stagger the patrol resources to like make sure you have more people out on the hotter days. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I think in general, there has not been there's there's a a series of interesting papers in the past few years about like what exactly it is police officers do and, you know, what aspects of that are effective at deterring crime and which aren't. But it's not a um, it's not a super well studied area and, you know, has a lot of sort of practical Influence. I mean, it's, it's also interesting. I had always assumed that this whole thing about, like, there being more crime on hot days was people being um, mistaking the fact that the high school students aren't in school oh. uh, for, a, for a temperature effect. But again, I was wrong. It turns out the folk wisdom is correct. People do more crimes on hot days, um, you know, which which is interesting in and of yeah. itself. Because, like, we are looking at hotter days, right? And, and it's something that I've seen because I've been trying to look at some of the, like, big picture climate literature recently. And that it's very actually challenging for people to know, like, what to put in the models, mm-hmm. right? And I haven't seen any that, like, suggest, you know— we should be expecting a 3% increase in violent crime rates in moderate temperature developed countries, right? right. As like a potential harm. Uh, and then a lot of them, you know, will say things that the most sophisticated models, you know, will say that, look, like you have to offset some of the costs by indicating that like this will probably be good for like crops in Minnesota, right? But potentially quite bad for crime in Minneapolis. And, and you know, there's... Unfortunately, we're like rushing ahead into the climate problem, like well, well, well ahead of the research. But I feel like this would probably have not occurred to, you know, like a typical like atmospheric scientist to even go look into. Right. I think the relationship between, but which is interesting because I think that climate change is the result of human activity and climate change will have a dramatic impact on how humans deal with other humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I even joked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think like during a moment of everyone yelling at each other on Twitter and in, in on the Hill, where I was like, you know, the background to this is that it is currently 96 degrees in D.C. and everyone is enraged and very hot. 
And so I think that seeing that relationship, you know, it, it's a back and forth. And I think that how we integrate climate research into how humans do things in general and how humans react to being extremely warm or extremely or the weather being extremely humid, I think it, it, it's worth taking the time to do. Props to to environmental economics for really, I mean, for for all that economics that I and a lot of other people have given economics grief for kind of big footing into the social sciences and saying, no one has ever studied this with data before. This really does seem like an opportunity to kind of bring together some of the traditional micro-level social science stuff and a uh, broader macro-level understanding of the ways in which a changing planet is going to continue to uh, put people in extreme situations more often and more extremer. Hopefully more time for everyone to, uh, you know, sit at home or maybe in the comfort of your car, listening to your favorite podcasts, uh, you know, sending Talking to uh, your fellow podcast listeners on Facebook about your favorite podcast. Sure, exactly. Right. Getting, getting into the groups, doing all the stuff, doing all the recommendations. It's it's the place to be. Um, so so thanks, guys. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Guild. And we will return on Friday. Are you in a geography bee? Oh, yes. Have I ever, have I not sh- shared the story of my successes in the National Geography Bee in seventh I, grade? I, I no, I hear about it. Because I, I lost in, this, in the state finals and I feel. Man, that it I didn't was even bad... make it out of my classroom the only time I did Geography Bee. I, I, I feel it was a, a bad beat among giants. Because the premise of their question was that Iceland is a Scandinavian country, which is not really true. <laughs> This Scandinavian capital city is heated by hot springs. So I didn't know because I couldn't really think. But I said Oslo being a Scandinavian capital city. But the quote unquote correct answer was was Reykjavik. Reykjavik. But that's not Scandinavia. No. Motherfucker. (laughs) It's Viking. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. But that's. How 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 are we defining Scandinavia? Scandinavia. Minnesota is... is not part of Scandinavia. So just because some fucking okay, wait, Norwegian people. This is move the there. most weeds conversation we could actually be having. Is re- rehashing our annoyance with <laughs> so, so what so we're defining Scandinavia as just the landmass? Yeah, it's a place. Yeah, Norway, Sweden. Well, yeah, I mean obviously yeah. it's a place, but yeah. like place is a human construct. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.